that we get from the book of Ezra. When they opened the scroll, the people stood. But in the book of Ezra, they stood all day long. I mean, it was for about five hours they stood, so we're not going to ask you to do, stay that long. All right. Um, Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, the higher powers, literally, and our King James translation has it literally correct, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes, custom to whom customs, fear or reverence or respect to whom fear and reverence and respect is due, honor to whom honor. Lord, you're a God of order. You're a God of absolute authority. And God, we need authority in our lives. We need order. And we thank you, God, that you have ordained these things so that our lives are not in confusion, but our lives are predictable, they're reliable, they're dependable. We thank you, God, for the freedom that we have in America. We're told in 1 Timothy that prayers and supplications and giving and thanks ought to be made for all men, for kings and all those who are in authority so that we might live a quiet and peaceable life. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of truth. So God, you have ordained government so that peace can flourish, so that the gospel can be spread. And God, we don't understand why our government is corrupt at times, and why some governments are so oppressive. But God, we know that you are ordaining things as you are sovereign king of the universe. And it's for us to trust. And so God, today, I pray that you will help us understanding your God-given design for government and help us to understand our design to submit and to surrender to it, Lord. And not just government, God, you have given authority in our lives in a lot of different areas. So help us, God, to understand that when we submit, we are submitting as unto Christ. Give us clarity. Give us a good heart and spirit when we submit, Lord, so that it's pleasing to you. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage just seems to pop out of nowhere in 
the book of Romans. And some people have taken it, some expositors have looked at this passage and, and just said that, that, um, that Paul is just sort of jumping to a, another topic here. And I think that's partially true. He is turning to another topic. But in chapter 12, he's given us the marks of a believer. What distinguishes somebody as a Christian? It's humility. It's rejoicing in hope. It's being patient when you're in tribulation. Those are the things that that mark a believer. Those who don't take vengeance into their own hands. Those who trust God to recompense your enemy. And we're to bless those. We're to pray for those people that have harmed us. In fact, we're to go out of our way to do them good. If our enemy is hungry, we are commanded to feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them drink. For in so doing, we're heaping coals of fire. And if you remember two weeks ago, we described that as somebody coming to somebody's house in the middle of the night and knocking on the door, and your fire has gone out, and you willingly get out of bed, out of your warm, cozy place, and you take your coals out of your fire and you give them on their pan, and they take that back home, and they're thinking, man, what what a good neighbor. What a friend. And you can win people over. We are not to be overcome by evil. As followers of Christ, we overcome evil with kindness and with good. And so I think Paul is now slightly shifting to a new topic, but I think he's also answering the question, But what about if my civil liberties have been violated? What if my lawful given rights have been broken? What if my property has been stolen or abused in any way? Am I supposed to just dismiss all these things as a Christian? How do I live in in a world where sin just is, is a part of everyday life? Am I just to always just to turn the other cheek? Am I always just to, to uh, walk away and say, well, you know, I, I'm just going to have to lose that investment? And so Paul is saying there is a place for government in those situations. We're not to take personal vengeance. Chapter 12, verse 19. Give place to vengeance. Do not avenge yourself. Allow God to work in our interpersonal relationships. So Paul now is talking about not interpersonal relationships, but he's talking about how government can role, its role in, in those kind of situations. Now Paul understood keenly what that means. He was in the city of Philippi, and there he was beaten. He was thrown in the inner prison. His feet were thrown into stocks. And when he was going to be released, he says, no, you go get the magistrates. You bring them here. You have them come and release me. Because you took me as a Roman citizen. You violated my rights. You beat me without a trial. And when they found out that he was a Roman citizen, they were very, very fearful. So Paul didn't just say, oh, you know, this is fine. Go ahead and abuse me all you want to. No, he, he said there's a place for government, 
And I want you to understand that I'm going to use the tool that God has given me, and that is the institution of government. When Paul was arrested for trumped-up charges, like my pun, (laughs) these charges that were not legitimate, that he had defiled the temple, that he'd brought Greeks into the temple, they wanted to try him there in Jerusalem. And he knew that they were going to try to kill him. A conspiracy theory had been hatched, if you would. Forty men had joined in this conspiracy to kill Paul. And so, as he was shipped down to Caesarea to protect him, one of his Roman governors came to Paul and said, Paul, they they want to transfer you back to Jerusalem. And Paul doesn't just say, yo, whatever they want to do to me, that's fine. No. He says, I am going to appeal to Caesar. And so we have a place for government to work out those conditions in our life that when our rights have been violated, our property have been been taken or seized for whatever reason by someone else, God has given us government. And so this is where Paul is is, uh, telling to go to the court system. Let that... Let, let the courts figure this out. Now, the only place that a believer is forbidden to using the civil government to intercede is that with another believer in Christ. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6, and that's not my passage this morning, that's not my sermon, but I just want to tell you that, that believers, we are forbidden to go to law against another believer. And Paul gives us the rationale behind that. We don't want to air out our dirty laundry as Christians in front of a lost world. And secondly, Paul says, we are going to judge angels. Are we not able to judge the matters of everyday life? Certainly we should be able to settle those things. And then thirdly, he says, there are wise people in the church who can get together and work these things out. And he says, when a brother goes to law with another brother, or a Christian organization brings another Christian organization into litigation, Paul says this. He says, you had been better off just to suffer the loss and allow people to do you wrong, if it's a Christian, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the heart of Paul's teaching in Romans 13 is that there is a place for government that God has ordained it, because God in his wisdom knows that men are sinful, and we live in a fallen world. I believe that government was instituted after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, we see the first reference to capital punishment. It says, if man sheds man's blood, by his blood it shall be shed. That's the first institution of government that the government will step in and enact justice. And the reason being that God has given that command is because you and I and all people are created in the image of God. And so we are to respect one another as image bearers of God. And so God instituted government because he knows as a concession 
to restrain evil. God does this often in the Bible, where he doesn't actually explicitly command us to do something, but he does it in order to restrain evil from having a free reign. In the book of Deuteronomy, we are given the requirements for divorce. Now, God was not endorsing divorce. He never has. But what God was doing, he was doing it in way of concession, knowing that men and women are going to have these fights and have these disagreements. He says, when this comes, I'm going to do this to protect the innocent party. I'm going to do this to protect the wife. Because a man in the Old Testament could just simply divorce his wife for any reason at all. Burnt the toast this morning. Okay, I'm done with you. And he does it to protect, give her a certificate of divorce so that she can get into a legitimate relationship for someone to take care of her. It wasn't that God said, okay, I I, I just want to foster a way out of a marriage. No. And so government is sort of designed this way too, that that it's a, a concession that God knew in his wisdom that we live in a world that without it, we're going to run amok. Can you imagine getting on a highway without a speed limit? It would be a disaster. <laughs> and so God has, 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 in his divine wisdom, has designed order in the universe. Everywhere we look, everywhere we, we turn, we see the God's divine order. And I'll just give you some examples in nature. God has placed the celestial bodies in the firmament. And they're orderly. We know the seasons. I, I like to get up early in the morning and do my exercising before it gets hot. But I've been noticing that every morning since the winter, the, the summer solstice, when was that? Back in June 21st? I, I could get up at 545. Well, now I have to get up at, well, I can still get up early, but the sun isn't coming up until 620. Now, what is... God doing? He's bringing fall to us, isn't he? He's showing us the months, the days, the seasons of the year. God is a God of order. He's a God of design. I'm amazed by the migratory patterns of birds. It is so incredible. Does anybody tell the birds to get up and fly? No, it's our God who's put this in their their mechanism, that they just do it instinctively. Symbiotic relationships are found everywhere in nature. In fact, that's one of the greatest arguments against evolution. Symbiotic relationships, those that that have to have each other in order to exist. Can you imagine how long it might have taken for a pear tree to have fruit if we didn't have the bee at the same time? God created it all together to work together. He's a God of design, a God of order. You think about every minute detail in your body. Every single system that you have, the circulatory system, your digestive system, your skeletal system, and they are all working harmoniously together because our God is a God of order and design. God has ordered design in the domestic life as well. God has created man first so that man should lead. 
so that man should take care of his family, that he should protect, that he should provide, and that he should be the priest in his home. God has created a helper that is suitable, that corresponds to his exact needs in God's wisdom. The woman is co-equal with man in personhood and in spirituality, but God has designed her differently and tenderly and motherly. When my kids fell down and skinned their knees, not a one of them ever come running in the house saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. None of them ever did that. They pick up the phone. I got a phone and they never call me. They call mom. That's her role. I can't do that. She's my equal, but God has made her different. Praise the Lord for that. Amen, brother. (laughs) Oh, good. Now, God has placed children in the home, and God has designed them to be submissive to their parents in the Lord. Study after study after study has shown that children who grow up in a home with a parent of mother and father, that they're mentally, socially equipped to face the challenges of life so much better than those who've come from single-parent homes. We know order is necessary in the economic world. It's also commanded in the ecclesiastical life of Christianity. God has placed authority in every one of our lives. It's either through a parent or it's through an employer who employs you. And even the employer is under the authority of God. He's answerable. He's accountable. In the church, God has given us pastors, elders, and we are to obey those who rule over you in the Lord so that they have to give an account for their leadership so that this would be a joy for them and that they willingly submit. So God has ordained all kinds of authority in our lives. God desires accountability. Accountability keeps us all in check. So confident living, confident living is found really through submission. My wife has said this often, raising our kids, that the child needs boundaries. The child needs rules because that provides security to that child. You and I are no different. God tells us that through submission, we can find confidence for living. God has designed a chain of command. He has done this for our protection, our preservation, and our profit. That's why God has put authority in our lives. It's not that God wants to oppress us. God wants to protect us. He wants to profit our lives. The way to truly find liberty and to find true freedom is through submission. The world knows nothing about that. 
The world thinks the way to find liberty and the way to find freedom is to defy authority. I grew up during the 60s and 70s when people were throwing off and defying all authority. They were throwing out marriage. They were throwing out sexual purity under the guise of liberation and freedom. And you know what? After that generation, divorce has escalated out of control because God's design is to protect us. It's to profit us. It's to benefit us. So when we willingly submit to authority, we are actually submitting to God. By submitting to authority, you are submitting to God. Let every soul, without exception, every one of us, are to be subject to the governing authorities, the higher authorities. I want to point out just two words in our text. The first word is let. Let. And then the next word is be subject. It's a passive middle voice in the original language. The idea is that I have to submit myself. It must be a willing act. True submission is not through coercion. True submission is a willing act of my choice. A choice of to surrender my will. And so when Paul writes the Romans here, he says, you need to submit willingly yourself. And so submission is a command. It's an imperative mood. But it's a softer type of command in that it is granting permission to the authority. I am surrendering myself. So submission is willingly laying ourselves under. The Greek word to submit is hupo tasso. Hupo we know means under. Tasso means to arrange or to order your life in such a way that the authority then dictates to how to live. And so we are to willingly do this, to place ourselves under this this, uh, order that the government is going to bring. Now, verse 2 tells us the reason why. Oh, I'm sorry, the rest of this verse tells us why. For there is no authority except from God. This is hard for us to get our minds around. Our God is sovereign over this world. Our God is sovereign over government. You look at the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Daniel, there was no government except for the ones that God had put in place. And so as much as you and I might not like the current administration that's in office, you and I can have complete peace about it. Because God is ordering this world and the governments that exist because it's His plan. He's bringing things to his fruition. God put the Roman government in place at the time of Christ. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, 
He said, don't you realize that I have the exousia? I have the right. I have the authority to release you, Jesus. I have the right to crucify you, Jesus. And Jesus answered with this. He says, you have no exousia. You have no right. You have no power. You have no authority except what has been given to you from above. So our God, you I mean, we look at this world today and we're thinking it's going out of control, don't we? We're moving toward globalism. We're, we're, we're seeing the, the, the EU. I remember living in Ireland and the headlines in the Irish Times said, Europe has never been united like this since the Roman Empire. That, that's biblical prophecy being fulfilled. A new Roman Empire will come about when Jesus Christ comes again. And so we know that every government has been established by God. So I'm to submit to it. Now I'll talk about a little bit about where civil disobedience comes in, because it does. The apostles certainly were part of that. Our founding fathers... After studying this, I'm not so sure our founding fathers had it right. I don't know. I might get, I might get eggs thrown at me for saying that. <laughs> but, but it's not cut and dried, is it? That's another, that's a whole kettle of worms I probably shouldn't opened up. But anyway, where was I? The reason God is the source. Submission is, first of all, upward. You might not like your boss. He might be a crank. But servants are to submit not with eye service, but with singleness or sincerity of heart because we are doing it as unto the Lord. Wives, your husband may have been a stinker all day long. (laughs) I hate to say this, but you submit to him as unto to Christ. And here's the beautiful thing when a wife does that, she can convict him and win him over by her chaste conversation, that's his lifestyle, coupled with fear, that is reverence and respect. Now the husband's not off the hook because if you keep reading that passage, it gets down to likewise the husband. Likewise, you dwell with her according to knowledge. What you know your wife needs, you had better live up to that. As living with one who is a weaker vessel. You don't step on her. You don't abuse that right and that privilege that God has given you. You cherish that wife. You serve your wife as Christ would serve and lay his life down for you and I. So the letter of Peter is all about submission. Servants, wives, husbands. The reason we do this is because it is upward first. Secondly, God has made it a permanent arrangement. In verse 1, it says, The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Appointed. It's Again, it's the Greek word tasso. Arranged and set out by God. But the tense of this verb is in the perfect tense. It's almost untranslatable in English. That's why it's translated as a present tense. The ones that exist are appointed by God. But the idea of the perfect tense, they have been appointed, 
and they will continue to be appointed, and they will always be appointed. Every government that's ever existed, God designed it that way, and this is the way it's always going to be. So it's a permanent arrangement. In Daniel, as Daniel was in a pagan environment, a godless environment, and Daniel's prayer was this, his prayer of worship, He said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. He, God, changes the times. He, God, changes the seasons. He, our God, He removes kings and He raises up kings. Daniel 2.21 So Paul is not saying that there is no place ever to resist an authority, but he's pointing out why God has ordained it. When any authority directly violates the laws of God and the common law, C.S. Lewis calls it common law, he's talking about the law of human dignity. Because you and I are created in the image of God, and every conscience knows that. Everybody does. I've been watching debates this week. I don't know why I got off on it. Of atheists and Christians. And the Christian will always find the weakness in the atheist argument soon as they talk about moral justice. Because without God, it is all subjective. But every one of us knows in our heart of hearts what true justice is. And when that is violated by the government or direct explicit commands by God are violated by the government. The Christian is under no obligation. In fact, the Christian, by his conscience, needs to submit to God rather than man. By submitting to authority, by not submitting to authority, life really becomes insecure. Verse Two, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. That's a life of insecurity. The word to resist is the same word tasso as the first word was, hupotasso, only this word is anti. We know what anti means. It means I'm against putting myself under their rules. Now, that's human nature, isn't it? By human nature, we want to resist being told what to do. We, by human nature, want to resist being told how to, how to conduct our, our lives. I, I remember as a teenager, I went off to college. I went from northern Illinois all the way down to the bayous of Louisiana. And so I thought I was Mr. Independent. I came back home, 19 years old, thought I had the whole world figured out. But my dad had better advice for me. (laughs) And as long as I lived under his roof, he told me when I was going to be home. He told me how I was going to talk in that house. And he told me how I was going to treat my mom. I remember going to seminary, thinking, man, I'm a grown man. And I walked into class, and one of the requirements in the divinity school that I went to 
is you had to wear a tie to class. And I said, I, I've, had, I've been down in Louisiana. I've been doing my own thing. I'm a lacrosse-country team. I'm, I'm a big shot. <laughs> I have full scholarship. I do what I want to do. And I walked in. The professor looked at me the first day, and he says, where's your tie, Mr. Cross? I said, oh, I forgot it. He says, well, you're going to go home, and you're going to get it because you're not going to sit in my class without it. That was an eye-opener to me. And I walked out of that class thinking, who does he think he is? It doesn't matter. I had put my name on the roll in the register. I agree that if I'm going to go to class here, I'm going to do it the way that they asked me to do it. Judy, you know this. The only way that mission can run is that they've got to come under that roof. They're going to do it the way Judy wants them to be done. Otherwise, it's chaos. And that teacher, that professor was trying to show me that there's an orderly way to come into my classroom. I went home and I found a clip-on tie. <laughs> and I clipped it on and walked back into class. It was almost over. And he says, I guess that'll have to do. But the reason I did that, I rolled it up after class and I stuck it in my glove box because I still had a little bit of rebellion. And I went into the next class and he didn't call me out on it. But I thought if he did, I can go back out to my car and clip it on. That's who we are, though. We naturally, our flesh wants to resist, but God has a better plan for us. Rebellion toward authority. Listen to me. An attitude of rebellion toward authority really reflects your attitude toward God. Young people, hear me out. Teenagers, I know it's hard sometimes to sit under mom and dad. But listen to me, when you learn this, by submitting to your parent. My wife sent me a quote this week. She had no idea that this was my message. It was from Billy Graham. And Billy Graham said this. He says, if children don't learn to submit to their parents, they will never learn to submit to any other authority in life. You remember being embarrassed by that loudmouth kid in school who always talked back. I remember going to his house. His name was Van. And I was embarrassed when I was in his house, the way he talked to his mom. And he got away with it. She didn't say a word to him. Again, it was a broken home. Didn't have a dad. I mean, the dad should have yanked that kid up by his hair. First of all, cut his hair because he had a... I'm old-fashioned. I'm sorry. <laughs> boys ought to look like boys. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. My Baptist roots are coming out. But anyhow, that kid had so much trouble in school. He never learned it at home. So really, our rebellion really reflects our attitude toward God. We don't want to be accountable for our actions. Now, I want to put this in historical perspective for us. I didn't realize it was already 1225, so I'm going to have to end this thing. And I haven't even got out of verse 2 yet. <laughs> but by submitting to authority, we think that the 
current administration doesn't deserve being submitted to. Sometimes we think that way, don't we? We think there's a dual system of justice in America right now. And there, there very may well be. And I'm not going to get on that hobby horse. I'm going to say this, though, that the Roman government, when Paul wrote this, looked like devils compared to what we have in the current administration. Nero was the most brutal, spiteful, vindictive, vicious emperor that the Roman Empire had seen up until that point. Diocletian surpassed him later on. But Nero was persecuting Jewish people. He was persecuting, and before him, Claudius Caesar, he expelled, he kicked Christians, Jewish Christians, he expelled them all from Rome. Kicked them out. They lost everything. And so Paul, this is the historical context when Paul is writing this. So I'll just kind of summarize the rest of it. The purpose of government is twofold. Government must not pervert or destroy or destroy moral good in society. Rulers are not a tear to good works, but to evil. So government must preserve what is good. That is government's role. When the government tells you and I what we can inject into our bodies, government has gone too far. That is outside of the legitimate, God-given role for government. And you may have a completely different mindset about the COVID vaccine. And if you took it, and you took it with good conscience, that's, that's, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But if you, in good conscience, resisted, you had every right. Because that is not our government's role. Our government is to promote what is good. The government has no right to define marriage. God alone has the right to define marriage. God took a rib from Adam, and Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman. Therefore, the man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife because they are one flesh. The government has no right to define what marriage is. The government has no right to define when life begins. That belongs to our sovereign king alone. The psalmist said this, You have known me from my mother's womb. My substance was not hid from you. When I was made in secret, in the curiously wrought, in the lowest parts of the earth, referring to being in the mother's womb, your eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and all my members were written in your book. God defines when life begins. Government does not decide how many genders there are. God says this, In the beginning I created male and female. That belongs to God. 
Government must promote what is morally upright. Do what is good and you will have praise of the same. The word praise implies approval, commendation, living acceptably, peacefully, and upright as a person of integrity. Believers can enhance your testimony by submitting to government. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to be king or supreme or to governors or to them that are sent by God as punishment of evildoers for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that by well-doing you may put to silence the ignorant and foolish people. So by submitting to government, we can enhance our testimony. Submission is motivated by realizing that we are really serving God. Verse 4, and I'll end with that. For he is God's minister. He's God's minister. So when we get that in our head, it gives us the motivation to submit to government. He is God's minister. God's ministers, therefore, are under a moral obligation. When we resist the authority, we set ourselves against God. By direct resistance, God is being indirectly defied. Lastly, Paul tells us the motive behind it. Therefore, verse 5, we must be subject. Again, the passive middle voice. We must be, allow ourselves to surrender, not only because we fear wrath, but also because of our conscience. You know, our conscience... It can control us when we're doing wrong. I want to tell a little illustration about um, our good friend, the police officer, who's here this morning. Corey pulled up into my son's driveway. She probably doesn't know this. But she stayed to visit with my son and his wife. And I think she was off duty. And she stayed for about two hours. Well, my son's neighbor has given him all kinds of grief. I mean, threatened, severe threats. I mean, unlawful threats. And Kelly never took any vengeance. And this guy's a known gangster. And he sees this police car sitting in the driveway, but because his conscience was eaten up by guilt... He was coming out of his skin, thinking, he is dumping all of this, and they're coming after me. I'll give you another illustration close to home. Now, my, my, my son, he's not a, a rebel. He's not a hooligan. But he's mischievous. <laughs> and one night, he came home a little bit late, he and his buddy. And he's got a habit, if that lock doesn't automatically open when he pushes the code, he tries to shove it open. And his buddy, they got their hoodies on. They look like gangsters. It's like 12.30 in the morning. And so my son starts kicking the door. All of our lights are off. Our neighbor across the street is watching all this. So he calls the police. It says, somebody's trying to break into your house, this house. It's 2622 Madison Avenue. They didn't send one police car. What did they send, Tracy? Eight. 
<laughs> Our neighborhood's a rough neighborhood. <laughs> you never know what you're getting into downtown Ogden. I mean, it looked like Christmas out there. Lights going everywhere. Well, he'd been up to some mischief. Don't know exactly what it was. But him and his buddy look out the window and says, Oh, you remember when we did this? <laughs> you remember when we rolled the window down and we said that? Or you remember when you took that turn a little bit fast and you screeched the tires? Now, if they had been behaving themselves and not goofing off, they would have looked out the window and said, I wonder what's going on. <laughs> right? <laughs> and when you do the right thing, you don't have to be looking over your shoulder. Do what is right. Live before God. Because the wicked... They flee when nobody's chasing you. But the righteous, they can be bold as a lion. So God has given us government for a good reason. And that's for us to live under its rules, to willingly submit as if we were submitting to God, and to thank God for our liberties and our freedoms, and knowing that civil disobedience is only necessary when God's law is violated by the government. What about revolution? It is warranted when civil government has committed two things. When your government suppresses, purposely, actively suppresses what is morally good, and when the government actively promotes what is evil. Now, Christians are divided on pacifism and just wars, I frankly, I, I not lean, I'm convinced from this passage that, that government has a responsibility before God to intervene when it is a just and righteous war. I just wish we had a government that we could trust and have confidence in. But when we don't, we submit to government as to God, knowing that God is big enough to sort those kind of things out. We do it by conscience, allowing God to, to handle what we cannot see and what we do not understand. So God has given us authority because God wants to order our lives. And when we are willingly, joyfully submitting to authority, we are living under God's protection and God's will. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage, God. It's so appropriate for the times the times that we're living in right now in America. We don't know where our government's going to go. We don't know where it's going to end up, Lord. But we know that one thing is for sure, that government is going to get more and more corrupt. As time progresses toward the second coming, God, our voices might be heard the loudest behind prison cells. And so, God, I pray that we will have the right heart, that we will have the right attitude. God, this morning, we started our worship by watching brickmakers in the country of Pakistan under an oppressive government regime. And yet those believers have submitted themselves. And God, they are shining lights, lights among a crooked and perverse generation.
as they do all things without murmuring, grumbling, and self-pity. Would it to God that we would live the same way under our government and thank God for the privilege of living in America when I can go out and I can give anybody a Bible. I can witness to whoever I want to. And we have the freedom of speech to preach in America God-honoring messages. So God, I pray that we have a right heart and right attitude for the government that you've placed us under in the name of Jesus.